Good afternoon, and thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about counterterrorism policy. Um, uh, well, first, let me introduce myself. I'm uh, Brandon Arnold from the Cato Institute. Like I said, we're going to talk a little bit about counterterrorism policy. We have a phenomenal panel lined up. Uh, and I guess the centerpiece of today's event is a new book from the Cato Institute called Terrorizing Ourselves, uh, subtitled Why U.S. Counterterrorism Policy is Failing and How to Fix It. Um, we do have a few copies of this book on hand, so if you're interested in picking one up, please see me uh, after the program. Uh, one of our speakers today is, uh, is one of the, the co-editors, uh, Chris Preble, and he'll be speaking second. But first up, we have uh, one of the contributors to the book, uh, Dr. Paul Piller. He and uh, Chris actually co-wrote an article in the book entitled, uh, Don't You Know There's a War On? Assessing the Military's Role in Counterterrorism. Uh, Dr. Piller has a, a tremendously impressive resume. Uh, uh, he's the, currently the Director of Studies in the uh, Security Studies Program at the Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. He previously served as an officer in the U.S. Army, as a U.S. intelligence officer for over 28 years. Uh, in that capacity, he, he served a number of, of positions, including a national intelligence officer for the Near, uh, the Near East and South Asia, and the executive assistant to CIA's direct, uh, deputy director. Um, he uh, uh, also uh, served as the uh, executive assistant to the director of CIA, uh, of the CIA's director, uh, William Webster. Sorry for that. He's got a lot on his resume here and jumbled it up a little bit. But obviously a tremendously uh, impressive and, and knowledgeable person when it comes to, to intelligence and counterterrorism. And with that, I'll turn things over to Dr. Fuller. Thanks very much, uh, Brandon. Uh, I want to say, first of all, it's been a pleasure being associated with my friends at uh, Cato on this whole project, uh, the book that uh, Brandon described. Oh, okay, a little better. Uh, what I'm going to do is uh, say a few things about the uses of military force in counterterrorism in a, in a fairly uh, specific pro and con kind of way, and then turn things over to Chris, who's going to discuss a little bit more shall we say, the vocabulary of uh, counterterrorism as it relates to warfare and military force. And my three basic points I want to leave with you today. Number one, military force is a tool, but only one of several tools to be used to counterterrorism. Number two, it's a tool that we've used through the years in a number of different modes, and not all of which we tend to think of all at once. And number three, the use of military force in any of these modes uh, like the use of any of the other counterterrorist tools, has advantages and results to offer, but it also has important limitations and disadvantages. And a prudent use of military force certainly has to take into account. It works a lot better with the button having been pushed. Thank you, Chris. <laughs> Um, to have a prudent approach, you have to consider all the pros and cons. You know, if you go back about 25 years, I'm going to start with just a, a capsule bit of history here, and you think of the use of military force in counterterrorism, what we would have thought of back then was mainly use of force to rescue hostages in ongoing terrorist incidents. And there's been a long history, particularly where some of our friends and allies, like the Israelis and the Germans, have excelled in creating military capabilities that resulted in some brilliant successes 
of hostage rescue in the past, what the Israelis did at Entebbe and what the Germans did at Mogadishu. The United States was a little behind the curve on it, and it was only after the Iranian hostage crisis um, in 1979, 1981, that we developed the capability uh, under the uh, under JSOC uh, to do that sort of thing. Fortunately, we haven't been been called on to use those capabilities in a counterterrorist mode, although we had that incident last year involving the maritime captain who was kidnapped by, by pirates uh, and, as you recall, was rescued in an absolutely brilliant operation by our own naval special forces. So that was a nice reminder of what we still can do. But despite the successes, there were some pretty... Uh, distressing failures as well, even by people like the Israelis, who have had a number of incidents where they tried to rescue hostages and more people wound up getting killed than were taken captive in the first place. And then you had even larger, more spectacular failures like the Russians endured at the schoolhouse at Beslan or the theater in Moscow when they were dealing with Chechen terrorists. And what all those things and other big failures like the Egyptians at Malta in 1985 illustrate is one of the first limitations of the use of military force, and that is in these ongoing situations, the terrorists have the big obvious advantage of being able to inflict fatal harm on their hostages at any time. Well, as the dominant terrorist tactics evolved through the years away from the hostage-taking, although we still have that as a threat, to terrorists doing more of just going out and killing people straight away, then the, we began to think of the use of military force more in the retaliatory mode, striking back after something is done to us. And the United States has used force in this mode several times, such as the airstrikes against Libya in 1986 under the Reagan administration, after the terrorist bombing that Libya did at the discotheque in Berlin, or there were the missile strikes against Saddam Hussein's Iraq in 1993 after his regime tried to assassinate uh, former President George H.W. Bush. Uh, Then there were the missile strikes against targets associated with al-Qaeda in 1998 after our embassies in Kenya and Tanzania were bombed. And the first part, at least, of Operation Enduring Freedom in Afghanistan, beginning in late 2001, had a retaliatory aspect to it. This was obviously a direct response to 9-11. And if, we have to be, if, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, this retaliatory mode has taken place to a large degree to satisfy our public collective desire to do something, to strike back, basically revenge. And, you know, in more judicious kind of policy analysis, that's sort of hard to defend. What is somewhat more defendable is the use of military force in this mode for deterrence. Now, it is not true, as some people have asserted, that there's no such thing as deterring terrorists. No, you know, people like uh, Brian Jenkins, my good friend, uh, who's written about this, uh, has pointed out a number of ways in which one can help to deter terrorists. Um, But... um, There are a number of major limitations here as well. Mostly we're dealing with non-state actors, like al-Qaeda. And those actors have little targetable assets of value, uh, striking which um, would have major deterrent value. More often than not, for a terrorist leader, a forceful response can be seen even to be welcome. It brings about the rally-around-the-flag effect. Uh, Even Gaddafi in Libya enjoyed some of that effect after the 1986 airstrike. 
and for non-state groups, even more so than states like Libya. This elevates them to the state of a belligerent at the same level as a, not only a state, but a great power like, like us. And I have to say the past record of deterrence through retaliation has not been particularly encouraging. I mentioned a couple of times the events with Libya in 1986, and rather than being deterred, Gaddafi continued on his terrorist path for some time, and indeed the bombing of Pan Am 103 in 1988 may well have been, in part, his response to our retaliation uh, with the airstrikes in 1986. And as for al-Qaeda... Given the nature of its goals and the use of destructive confrontation with the United States as a means of pursuing its goals, the ostensibly divine basis of its motivations and the role of martyrdom in its methods, all of those things pose serious limitations to trying to deter it through a, after the fact, striking back with military force. Well, today, the dominant counter-terrorist use of military force has moved on to still other modes, as demonstrated by part of what we're trying to do with Operation Enduring Freedom in Afghanistan. And there, there are two modes I'm talking about here. One is the use of military force to directly degrade or destroy terrorist capabilities. And secondly, the stabilization of a country to prevent it from becoming a terrorist haven or sponsor. I'm going to focus on the first of those two because the second really gets into much broader topics about nation building and the like. This use of military force, trying to directly uh, inflict a kinetic bit of damage on terrorist capabilities, includes not only our ground operations in Afghanistan, at least in name, but also the, um, the drone strikes in northwest Pakistan, and actually even more so the drone strikes in northwest Pakistan, and limited operations elsewhere, usually, again, with uh, airborne missiles from UAVs in Somalia and Yemen. Now, the big basic advantage, the big attraction of using military force in this mode is that the effect, at least the hope-for effect, on terrorist capabilities is immediate and unqualified. It's not depending on some decisions yet to be made by a terrorist leader, as is the case with trying to deter someone. A secondary benefit is it may keep or help keep terrorists off balance, to the extent that they are worried more about their own security and who might get hit tomorrow, that tends to interfere with their planning. They lose their focus. They're not concentrating so much about what they're going to do against us since they're worried about what we're going to do against them. And a possible tertiary benefit, although I don't think this really is, we don't have much need for it since 9-11, is simply to demonstrate our, our seriousness and determination. After all, of all the tools of counterterrorism, what demonstrates our seriousness more emphatically than the use of military force? Those are the advantages. The limitations and the drawbacks are more numerous, and they're quite substantial, even though their indirect nature of some of them may make them less visible. And the chief limitation is simply the scarcity of good military targets to try to hit that would really have an impact on terrorism or would be of considerable value to the terrorists. We often talk about training camps, for example. And we had the, uh, the missile strike in 1998 after the embassy bombings against the Zawakili camp in Afghanistan associated with al-Qaeda. But basically, you know, what we were hitting was... 
uh, you know, open air man to man combat pits and tents and stuff like that, easily reconstructed or re- relocated. And even more sophisticated camps, be they in Afghanistan or anywhere else, do not represent the most important assets for a terrorist group with regard to preparing and planning operations, terrorist operations against us. Most of those things take place in not militarily targetable places, such as apartments in western cities, and all the other places that in the 9-11 operation, of course, were used, flight schools here, resorts in Spain. You know, our, our military is not too useful against that. So using military force to attack terrorist capabilities more recently has been less a matter of attacking facilities than of attacking people. And this really gets to what's generally known as targeted killing, otherwise known as assassination. The use of military force for this particular purpose has some of the same limitations as other forms of assassination, as well as some of its own. And once again, look at the Israeli example in terms of who has the most experience in this sort of thing. Uh, And some of the limitations and drawbacks become apparent. For example, the Israelis used, and this was a a, an air-to-ground missile, just like in our operations in northwest Pakistan, used such a missile to kill Sheikh Yassin, the uh, spiritual head of Hamas, back in 2004. Clearly, the result was not to cripple Hamas. Um, it just had a change of leadership. And this gets to a very basic limitation in this mode of military force, and that is that terrorists, even senior ones, are replaceable. Um, Take another Israeli operation. Uh, In 1992, they killed the then Secretary General of Hezbollah. And the main result of that was the guy who was killed was replaced by Hassan Nasrallah, who's proved to be the most charismatic, effective leader Hezbollah has ever had and has taken that organization to new heights of power and influence in Lebanon and the Middle East. So it's hard to consider that much of a net positive. And then as far as our own operations are concerned, we've, we've had all those Al-Qaeda number threes that we've sent to their maker. The most recent one was just a month or so ago. This is not to diminish the immediate impact that those operations have had, but the f- very fact that we've had a succession of number threes, if we take that literally, itself demonstrates the regenerative capability of that particular terrorist group. There are other complications and limitations the requirement for very precise and accurate intelligence, uh, the requirement for a lot of delicacy and execution and so on. And that gets to um, another big limitation of kinetic operations, um, and that is the ability of the terrorists to adapt. Uh, Think of bin Laden and his number two, Ayman al-Zawahiri. They are on the run, more or less, in northwest Pakistan. And this has, I believe, impeded their ability to exercise command and control and influence But they already were on the run, or at least on the walk, after the missile strikes in 1998, uh, after which bin Laden probably didn't sleep in the same place for any more than two or three nights in a row. But that clearly did not prevent the group from ginning up 9-11 three years later. And when overt military force rather than clandestine means are used, we have on top of all that the collateral damage and the anger and the recriminations that result from that. And we've seen this, unfortunately, in spades in many of our operations in Pakistan and Afghanistan. And the effect is not limited to the immediate neighborhood. In fact, uh, in Pakistan, there seems to be more anger and more resentment, not in the immediate 
place where the operation was conducted, but elsewhere in the country where people were not seeing it directly, but simply hearing about it through the news. The United States is the big kid on the global block. The superpower is even more vulnerable to this kind of resentment and popular backlash because we are the big kid on the block and easily seen as the bully. So there are serious consequences that need to be taken into account in any use of military force in the name of counterterrorism. And my concluding point before turning over to Chris is this. And when, when we talk about things like resentment and anger by populations in Pakistan or elsewhere over collateral damage, this is not an issue of counterterrorism versus popularity. It's not a popularity contest. Rather, it's an issue of the short-term versus the long-term. The short-term direct kinetic effect of taking in some terrorist out of commission versus the longer-term effects of the anger and resentment, as it may relate, and as it unfortunately does relate, to recruitment and support for what the terrorists are doing, um, uh, given, given the, uh, the sentiment against us. The use of military force in the Muslim world by us probably has unfortunately done more than anything else to sustain the bogus narrative of the extremists that the United States is out to kill and subjugate Muslims and to plunder their resources. And this narrative is the biggest single terrorist tool for recruitment and motivation. And with that, I'll turn the podium over to Chris. Well, thank you very much. Uh, next up, we have Dr. Chris Preble. Uh, he is the Director of Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. I already mentioned that he is the co-editor of a new Cato book, uh, Terrorizing Ourselves. He's also authored a number of other books. Uh, I'll mention just one, The Power Problem, How American Military Dominance Makes Us Less Safe, Less Prosperous, and Less Free. Uh, he previously taught history at St. Cloud State University and Temple University. Uh, he served as a commissioned officer in the U.S. Navy uh, on the uh, USS Ticonderoga during the Gulf War, and uh, he holds a degree in history, a Ph.D. in history from Temple University. With that, Dr. Preble. Thanks, Brandon. Um, and thanks, Paul Pillar. Um, I, I want to thank Paul. I'm going to embarrass him, I'm afraid, but I, I'm going to do it anyway, because uh, when I when we launched the strategic counterterrorism at K, uh, initiative at Cato two years ago, over two years ago, we had a very generous grant from the Atlantic Philanthropies, and we had a goal to bring together under this project the top terrorism experts from around the country and really around the world. And my colleagues and my co-editors of the book, Jim Harper and Ben Friedman, we were assembling our different lists of the people that we'd like to have participate and I always had Paul at the top of my list and I'd never met him I knew him only from his writings and it's just been a wonderful uh, collaboration and so I want to thank him personally for his generous uh, uh, generosity and his time and his expertise in the chapter that I co-authored with Paul and I have to give due credit Paul really did most of it uh, we review the leading arguments for and against using military force and Paul laid them out uh, from the military instrument and, and some of the drawbacks of the military instrument we also show that the uh, risks of military action often outweigh the benefits and I want to focus my remarks on a different but related problem and that is the rhetoric 
surrounding counterterrorism. Specifically, we question the utility and wisdom of characterizing counterterrorism efforts under this broad metaphorical rubric of war, quote-unquote. Consciously framing counterterrorism as an either-or proposition, as an either-warfare or a criminal justice problem, is equally unhelpful. The truth is, it's both or many other things. Counterterrorism isn't just a whole of government enterprise, it's a whole of society enterprise. It involves not merely government agencies, but the private sector and an alert and engaged citizenry. And, and let's not forget, it is a global enterprise requiring the active participation uh, and assistance of state and non-state actors all over the world. The most likely and the most important cooperation in this fight is going to come from the communities in which terrorist organizations attempt to recruit new followers, the very communities that are the intended audience for much of this organization's propaganda, an organization like al-Qaeda. Terrorist attacks are newsworthy, noteworthy, and therefore attract the most attention for their recruitment efforts. But by the same token, the effects of these operations often fall disproportionately on the very population that the organization is attempting to reach. And so by this, the use of terrorism is something of a double-edged sword. Many people have said that terrorism itself bears within it the seeds of its own destruction. I think that's a good way to look at it. So keep that in mind when you think about how we talk about terrorism and we talk about the use of the military uh, and how this language of warfare can have a detrimental effect. Because counterterrorism, as I said, is neither law enforcement nor war, strictly speaking, and to imply otherwise is a disservice. Now, here in the United States, for a domestic audience, we have a need to manage public expectations and to calm public anxiety. That's one of the critical jobs for uh, the U.S. government and for uh, an effective counterterrorism strategy. And so by that logic, it's inappropriate to cast our efforts as synonymous with warfare because it greatly exaggerates the nature of the threat. Uh, And it's equally harmful abroad for a similar reason. Casting our efforts as part of a wider military effort can contribute to the widespread perception that a group such as al-Qaeda is a bona fide belligerent rather than just a band of outlaws. The use of military force around the world, as Paul has said, and I want to reiterate, and especially in Muslim countries like Iraq and Afghanistan, has probably done more than anything else to sustain bin Laden's narrative about what U.S. intentions are, supposedly a false narrative, but this Our actions have sustained this false narrative. And whatever else U.S. military efforts have accomplished, they have conformed to this portrayal of a civilizational war between the Judeo-Christian West and the Muslim world and the U.S. leading the fight for the former and bin Laden and his group doing so for the latter. Utterly false, but our actions confirm this narrative. So in the chapter we talk about this and we... We talk about this phrase, war on terror, which has uh, been used, or GWAT, which is, you know, everything has to have an acronym here in Washington, right? It's a GWAT, Global War on Terror. And this phrase, which was criticized almost from the moment it was first uttered, just a few days after 9-11, uh, it has had the effect 
over the last eight or 10 years of conflating many different entities who have very, very different objectives. And it also complicates our uh, efforts to cooperate with our allies and gives legitimacy to terrorists as combatants. Now, this is not a partisan issue, and I want to emphasize this by quoting two different reports issued in 2008. That's 2008, the final year of the Bush administration. George W. Bush's Department of Homeland Security in 2008 advised policymakers to accurately identify the nature of the challenge that face our generation. If senior government officials carefully select strategic terminology, the government's public statements will encourage vigilance without unintentionally undermining security objectives. The same year, the Pentagon's Defense Science Board amplified these concerns, saying, Evocative phrases such as global war on terror and fighting them there so we don't fight them here may have short-term benefits in motivating support at home. However, this polarizing rhetoric can have adverse long-term consequences that reduce the willingness of potential allies to collaborate and give unwarranted legitimacy and unity of effort to dispersed adversaries. Yet another problem associated with using this terminology, counterterrorism, as a global war on terror, is that it elevates and legitimizes terrorists as combatants. I've already alluded to this. Now, we should drill down on this a little bit, because some people contend that terrorists are the modern-day incarnation of people like um, Hitler and Stalin. We should really just dwell on this for a minute, because while they share some superficial similarities, people like bin Laden, Zawahiri, or others, they clearly are megalomaniacal. They clearly have a desire to kill, but they do not have at their disposal a modern nation state populated by millions and millions of people, many of whom can be drafted into the military and wage war as a nation state can. And I think we really do ourselves a disservice by even implying a relationship between these kinds of things. We must focus, and another theme that is within this book is of talking about terrorism far more broadly than even I am in terms of war or not war. We have to diminish the appeal of these organizations and render them to the margins of history where they belong, not put them on the same level as the leaders of uh, major industrial states. Now, through the discriminate and rare use of military force, I also think, uh, uh, combined with the careful use of language, we, we have to recognize, and Paul alluded to this, the impulse to lash out and to react is very, very strong. And, you know, in the emotional aftermath of an attack, a political leader and opinion makers will be strongly inclined not merely to, to lash out, but to exaggerate the nature of the threat. We can, over time, however, erode the political utility of hyping the terror threat by patiently documenting what military action have or have not worked actions have or have not worked, and by drawing attention to the multifaceted nature of counterterrorism efforts, which include both military and non-military instruments. And I think 
If we focus the discussion that way and focus on the strictly speaking military, which are obvious to everyone, the kind of gray area things where even today the military and the non-military agencies dispute what it is, and the things that are clearly non-military, put them all on the table. Make everyone understand that all of these different instruments are useful, and in many cases the combination of them are essential to effective counterterrorism. Um, the last thing, and I've, I've already alluded to this a little bit, is in the book we talk about the importance of a sound counterterrorism strategy includes a strategy for talking about terrorism. And we have to aim to calm public fears. Terrorists take a name, their, their name after all is to terrorize us, to induce fear. Okay, And so a strategy should specifically be intended to counteract that aim. Okay? And part of this is being very specific about what the terrorist capabilities are, not just their intentions, which are admittedly quite uh, horrific, but their capabilities to do so. Suggesting, again, that relatively minor and ultimately containable threats posed by disconnected terrorist organizations around the world must be handled as we would a war with a major industrial state overstates the nature of the terrorist threat and therefore undermines attempts to reassure the public. I could even argue that it is in the rhetoric, in the way we talk about this, that is the coin of the realm in terms of military, in terms of effectiveness and counterterrorism strategy. After all, uh, in a traditional war, of which we thankfully don't have very many anymore, uh, you can count success or victory, a fa failure or victory by you know ships at sea or armies in the battlefield, and you count the number of bodies of, uh, injured and wounded and, and killed, and you have a good sense of who has won or lost. We don't have that kind of metric here uh, when you're dealing with a threat like counterterrorism. And in some respects, think of it this way, maybe the appropriate metric is how, fe how fearful we all are. If that is what their intention is, and if we are all more fearful today than we were 10 years ago, then can we say that the terrorists are winning still? And I want to close with just a brief discussion of the partisan frame here, because I think it would be really a mistake to, to skip over this. We have, ever since 9-11, we have been talking about terrorism in a very uh, politicized frame of reference, okay? Um, and this, I think, has really undermined our ability to think clearly and rationally about this and even to talk about it, what we're trying to accomplish and how we go about doing it. So take, for example, the dispute over whether the Obama administration should have continued with the Bush administration policies concerning, for example, targeted assassinations and the use of unmanned aerial vehicles uh, in, in northwest Pakistan, for example. This whole discussion often obscures a much more fundamental point. If most counterterrorism work is not using the military, then it might be appropriate to cast these efforts, or if it is, excuse me, if it is primarily a military function, then it might make sense uh, to cast these efforts, not just rhetorically, but legally, as warfare. On the other hand, if the military tool is often irrelevant and occasionally counterproductive, as we argue in the book, then combating terrorism, policymakers should consciously steer the conversation away from warfare per se and focus the public's attention on the range of tools they are using to advance public safety. Um, so it's my contention, our contention, the war on terror metaphor has really obscured the nature of the threat and the challenge, and at times undermined our ability to combat it effectively.
a resort to military force to deal with terrorist threats that might be better addressed by non-military means likewise complicates our efforts. The two problems go hand in hand. The Bush administration devised the GWAT framework partly to provide a rationale for using military force to remove Saddam Hussein from power in Iraq. The questionable rationales for that war, including the dubious linkage between Iraq and al-Qaeda, combined with the chaos that ensued after the collapse of Hussein's rule in Iraq, invited condemnation of many U.S. policies under that rubric of GWAT and discouraged other countries from openly collaborating with the United States, although we know uh, that they were uh, often happy to do so uh, uh, privately or, or covertly. And yet, even though the GWAT has been called into question almost from the moment that it was uttered, and even by agencies within the Bush administration, uh, it remains a very potent political tool. Um, we shouldn't forget, uh, one of candidate Barack Obama's slogans on the campaign trail was, hope over fear. Uh, but few other political leaders have been so willing to dial down the rhetoric pertaining to terrorism, ever fearful of being perceived as uh, having not done everything in their power uh, in the event of another attack. And since taking office, office, President Obama can be fairly criticized, I think, for failing to carry through on some of his campaign promises. And the question then becomes, why did he uh, alter course or even reverse course? And I think one of the obvious answers is that the political climate still rewards fear-mongering and this language of warfare. I think, and the case we make in this chapter and in this book, is that policymakers must appreciate the particular salience of non-military means for addressing the terrorist challenge. And they should be, not be shy about calling attention to such measures, including, for example, information sharing among law enforcement agencies, intelligence agencies, lawful electronic surveillance of suspected terrorists, even at the risk of being portrayed by critics as being soft. Because to steer clear of the language of warfare does not mean that the military cannot and should not play a role in combating terrorism. The key is in balancing the costs and risks of direct military action with such operations when such operations are deemed essential, and combining them with operations that diminish, and that, excuse me, that advance a broader agenda to diminish the gruesome appeal of terrorism in communities that have been willing to support or even tolerate it, so tolerate or support it. Reframing the nature of our counterterrorism efforts away from the military mindset and confining military missions to those rare instances when the precise application of force can deliver significant benefits and I think will pay long-term dividends. Thank you very much.